0: Hello and welcome back to the Insurance Appraisal Podcast with the Appraisal Guys. I'm Neil McLaughlin and,
1: and I'm Ed Faco.
0: Very good. Uh, we gave a little introduction about ourselves, but let's go over it again for people for episode two. What's your background in appraisal, Ed? Well, the
1: background in appraisal uh, goes back to 1998 for me, although I started contracting in 1978. Uh, back in 1998, appraisals were not done as uh, regulated as they are now there are more rules that are being pursued nowadays and even back when I did appraisal in 1998 I would I personally at that time thought it was just arbitration I didn't know too much of the difference because both were uh, options at least that's how it was stated to me by the insurance carrier and I didn't know how to be able to look that up and find out the difference
0: So we got a lot of years of experience here with Ed. Uh, Myself, I uh, had some training through uh, carrier operations and doing uh, arson cause and origin investigations. Today is episode two you're listening to. Again, it's Insurance Appraisal Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about the steps to appraisal. What leads up to appraisal? How do you know uh, a claim is eligible for appraisal? And what is appraisal? So with that, We were going to uh, start off the podcast by going over the appraisal language and a policy. So I'm going to go ahead and read a typical uh, appraisal language. It does vary, right, Ed, from contract to contract? It varies more and
1: more as the years go on also. There used to be the one standard New York 165 line fire policy from 1943, and that's what all appraisal clauses originated from and were based on. At least uh, going back to that year, there was many, many versions prior to that, even going back to the 1800s, that some history buffs would get into. But it became popular back then. Uh, in more recent years, ever since 2009, with the very major case in Texas, State Farm versus, versus Johnson, uh, appraisals become mer- much more popular and relevant and useful. So now the insurance carriers are also seeing where they've had some shortcomings. And they're adding languages in there, some of them to make it more fairer, some of them to make it more one-sided.
0: And that's normal because we've always talked about this basic premise that the, uh, the rules uh, for insurance and rules for appraisal is a living thing, almost like the law. And it's a living entity. And things are constantly changing, correct, through litigation and through policy changes. Would uh, you yeah, agree? that's
1: going to happen with anything. It, it, it's not rubber-stamped. It is today. And then tomorrow, some judge will make a ruling and people are going to rush to make changes and adapt to
0: that. All right. And then speaking of law, we're just going to take this moment to say, again, a disclaimer, this is not legal advice. We're speaking uh, about experiences we've had in the area of insurance appraisal. And we're speaking in generalities. And each case is uh, separate and unique and needs to uh, be dealt with as a unique Entity. So we're not asking anyone to follow our advice or our words step by step as each case will vary depending on what the venue is, where it occurred, and what the policy is, which we know there's different uh, clauses in certain policies, and the circumstances. So this is by no means legal advice. Okay. Now, with that, I am going to read a basic appraisal language that we found, and of course, will vary. And then we're gonna pick it apart. Okay? So here we go. Let's jump right in. Appraisal. If you and we, the insured and the insurer, fail to agree on the actual cash value, amount of loss, or cost of repair or replacement, either can make a written demand for appraisal. Each will then select a competent, independent appraiser and notify the other of the appraiser's identity within 20 days of receipt of the written demand. The two appraisers will choose an umpire. If they cannot agree upon an umpire within 15 days, you or we, the insured or the insurer, may request that the choice be made by a judge of a district court of a judicial district where the loss occurred. The two appraisers will then set the amount of loss stating separately the actual cash value and loss to each item, period. Now, for a big topic such as appraisal, that doesn't give you much direction. This leaves a lot of vague vague areas, would you say, Ed?
1: Oh, absolutely, and uh, that's one of the things. The The biggest variances between the language that you're seeing nowadays is occurring in the words in uh, where you just got to discussing who was Who is deemed to be selected as an appraiser? In your version there, I believe it, you said competent and independent. Is that correct? Yes. And in the version that I have pulled up on my laptop here, it says competent and impartial. And you will also see various other words that, for most purposes, a general layman would consider to be almost the exact same thing. And that's where it comes down to the splitting hairs in the courts. What does one word mean over another? Now, we're not going to get into the dissection of those words and the minutiae about that today, but in generalities, each party uh, is its almost automatically deemed that the person that is being selected is competent because that's that's who the party chose. The courts aren't going to argue that the person that uh, the insurance company or the policyholder chose wasn't, in fact, competent to do the job. That's rarely going to be an issue.
0: And that's that's compounded more by the fact that there's no – state licensure or department of insurance license required to do appraisal like we touched upon in episode one correct?
1: with rare exception in particular i can think of uh louisiana, louisiana is the one right. state and there are several others that have a couple additional uh regulations but not certain licensures about it but those are unique uh, animals there, all to himself i'd rather not talk about the one out of 50 or the two out of 50 occurrences you know, I'd rather discuss the ones that happened 48 out of
0: 50 times. Right. Just on a side note, what's your thoughts on, on licensure and having a state license for the position of a appra- insurance appraiser or, um, or umpire for that matter?
1: I do believe that uh, the best avenue for this is to sort of self-police the industry. I believe that once the government gets involved in anything when it comes to licensure, it just becomes a money pit uh, for the first part. But there is some validity to ensure a fair process. My concerns would be that one side of the industry would have a little bit more uh, leverage than the other side of the industry, because it's not like a bunch of homeowners are going to all all of a sudden get grouped together and say, hey, wait a minute, who's going to speak up for us on our behalf? Where do we get appraisers from? Where do we get umpires from? I do feel that if it were to come down to that, the only lobby that would be represented in strength would be the insurance carriers okay. and they may shoot for a fair fair option, but I also have to, you know, take, take away the premise that what if it's not?
0: All right. So the other issue would be, uh, if there was a licensure, which there's not in most States. Um, and since we're speaking in generalities, we're speaking for the, you know, most of the States who do not have a license for appraiser or the position of umpire. The idea would be, uh, if they were to make, uh, a licensure out of it and legitimize it as a, a standard the issue would be uh who controls that and uh what type of training now barring that where do people go to try and find say a homeowner is listening to the podcast and wants to go to appraisal where do they go to find a competent impartial unbiased uh independent appraiser
1: is this the time for the shameless plug <laughs>
0: Other than you know uh, uh, the two people you're listening to uh, we can't be everywhere or handle every appraiser what what would you say is good sound advice uh, or is there a uh, association or anything uh, uh, well we could talk about appraisal and umpire association but uh what 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 is on the books now that someone could go to, to to find a competent independent appraiser
1: there are several associations out there and if you just uh, uh, Use your search engine and, and search for insurance appraiser and umpire associations. The several that are out there will come up. I'm I'm not trying to lead anybody towards or away from any of those. So uh, the ones that I've attended personally have each given competent, um, but minimal education. Uh, there was one that was a, that better than the others in certain aspects, and then another one had some better ideology about other aspects. Some are more backed by attorneys from one side and one is backed by attorneys from the other side there's the pro insurance carrier attorneys that that would like to see one one agency and one association be more assertive and and policyholder attorney seems to want other ones but i think in the, in the end run any education and if the more alternatives that are available you know that that's that's better for everybody all involved. better
0: for the consumer right in yeah. the end right and the more competition the more the more people are out there that are competent the better off uh, the homeowner might be in getting competent representation and the majority okay. of,
1: of my education came from doing research on my own i'm one of those nuts that likes to just research every if it comes down to a singular word okay. what one word could take three hours of,
0: of investigating okay. and researching so now that we went over the appraisal clause and we could we could Dissect this and take uh, two days going over, but uh, how do we know that an appraisal is what is in, termed in the industry ripe for appraisal? What 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 do we what 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 point do we know we can go seek appraisal?
1: In generality speaking, once again, uh, if there is a dispute about the value of the loss. And now we get an interesting word. What is the value? In my interpretation, value would inc- would thereby include the scope of the loss, which inherently determines the value, because once you put a line item of work to be done, there is either the estimating softwares that are out there commonly, Simbility or Exactimate, or people that do their own homegrown uh, generic estimating versions. But you have to have a scope of, of work to be done to achieve a value. So some states allow for causation, which is scope in generality, to be be part of the appraisal. Some states don't. Okay, shifting towards that, though.
0: Why don't, so, but where do we know even to demand appraisal? So we're at, you want to, when you've negotiated everything down and you're at, usually they use the term impasse, correct? Where you don't feel any more negotiations would help the matter. Is that correct?
1: That's the main point that courts have ruled on. When the two parties have come to a point where they're not going to be able to agree on anything further, then they both realize that, you can either keep on banging your head against a brick wall, and I've heard a definition of insanity as being continually doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. There's a certain point in time, it might be two months, it might be six months, that you stop fighting for that claim because you're not going to make any more progress, and the insurance carrier is not going to budge. The, the policyholder's representative is not going to budge, so it comes to the point to demand appraisal, and that by itself is an interesting concept. Why don't you talk about what a demand for appraisal is? Okay,
0: you know? thanks. So we're gonna. So in order for me, and like I said, correct me if I'm wrong, because we, we like to give we like to bounce ideas off each other. But very uh, basic, as we as we learned earlier when I read the uh, typical uh, appraisal language, uh, the 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 demand for appraisal has to be in writing. Would you agree with that? Ed, it has to be in writing, correct?
1: It can, it's supposed to be. There are times that an insurance carrier will accept a verbal. Now remember, I'm saying this that as if the policyholder is the only one that is demanding appraisal. It also can be done by the insurance carrier. Can make the demand for appraisal too, and it benefits them at some points and times for litigation reasons. Why they should be the party that demands appraisal?
0: When I when I was actually when I was first introduced to the, the topic or concept of appraisal, uh, construct of appraisal. Uh, it was explained to me that uh, of course you know I, different uh everyone has their opinion but uh traditionally uh appraisal uh was put in the policy for the benefit of the insurer as opposed to the insured uh originally when this when this uh construct was put together uh, based,
1: based on my readings from the early 1900s and late 1800s that does seem to be the the rationale behind it
0: so all right so then we've got so we so we we've come to an impasse in a claim you know, to to determine amount of loss, and then we're going to do either side. Remember, right? Because uh, normally we think of appraisal as something that a insurer side will demand. But as Ed pointed out, as as I remember from my earlier training, the, insu- the appraisal clause was actually put there uh, to for the benefit of the insurer. Uh, Either side can make a written demand for appraisal, uh, and then we come to the point of selecting a competent, independent appraiser. Uh, competent and independent, I guess. Uh, sometimes I use the term unbiased, right?
1: Unbiased and also impartial.
0: And impartial. Okay. And uh, so that is is that that's a pretty low bar, really. If that's all the requirements are to become a uh, an appraiser for one side or the other, correct?
1: Well, the bar is low at the beginning of the threshold, but the time to be a disputant in this about is somebody independent or is somebody impartial, there there are regulations. And a lot of the regulations that deal with appraisal also come from the arbitration associations. So there are regulations that sort of either suggest or require in Illinois, there's arbitration rule number 18 from the AAA, American Arbitration Association, that makes it mandatory that each arbiter, and in this case now, as in Illinois appraisal is analogous to arbitration, it makes it mandatory that the, each appraiser or arbiter is supposed to disclose any information that a reasonable man would consider to, to create the, the impetus, the, the appearance of bias or influence.
0: Right, and that's just general, if you think about it, it's just common sense, but they've codified it and put it down in writing. Now, the other issue is, can you, uh, if you do have an issue with an opposing appointed appraiser, uh, you, uh, should bring that up as soon as possible, right? You don't want to bring this up after you've kind of hold this as an ace of the hole, and then had a, had a ruling, and then later on don't like the ruling, and then use that as a reason to try and reverse the ruling. If you have an issue, you want to bring that up as soon as You're aware of it. Is that correct?
1: What you're basically saying is what courts have said on this fact. If you do not raise the argument in advance, you have therefore waived the right. And the only cure for a potential bias is to be completely transparent. When you are involved in a situation, whereas I was just a in yesterday, I had to make the parties in an appraisal aware of my uh, casual acquaintanceship with another party getting appointed to the appraisal. I want that to be above board, and I want them to know it. If they have reason to object, now is the timely time to object. If they do not object, they have waived their objection. They cannot go back at the end and say, well, we thought it would be okay, but now we're changing our mind.
0: Okay, and the other thing here is that short little paragraph I read concerning appraisal language in the policy, it doesn't state when you can, in a time frame, demand appraisal. It talks about... The appraiser's identity within 20 days of receipt of the written demand. It talks about uh, 15 days that you and we can uh, choose a judge, uh, can select, can go to a judge in order for determination of umpire. But there doesn't say anything in this appraisal clause concerning what the time frame is to demand appraisal. So my question to you would be: I've went ahead and started making repairs, but then I find out that the amount that has been proposed by the carrier is not enough to complete the repairs. At what point is it too late to demand appraisal?
1: The way that courts look at it, I always have to fall back on whatever my court readings are, um, and, and then Illinois is where I research the most, but I do read generalities around the entire nation. The demand for appraisal has to be made in a timely fashion, number one, and that doesn't have a date stamped on it. But the method of determining if it's timely is would the notice of the demand for appraisal be prejudicial to the insurer or to the other other party in the appraisal at the time frame it was made? In Illinois, there is a case law on one particular case that 31 months after the date of loss, the demand for appraisal was made and it was found to be a timely demand for appraisal. I've also read 39 months in another state.
0: Okay. So, there's no, there's no particular date, time frame. It's basically said a reasonable amount of time uh, that won't be prejudicial to either side, okay? That's correct. But you were pointing out something that does actually occur in real
1: life. What about people that have already started? Or let's take that a step further. What about they've started and completed the work, and now the the proceeds are not sufficient enough to pay for the work? All uh, right hesitate to, you know, give legal information about this, but just in general, as a former contractor myself, that's sort of foolhardy going ahead with work that you're not sure if you're even going to get paid. You should have that agreed upon before you get to the end of the the labor and materials portion of the job. You should have the agreement solidified where you know that the funds are there, or you could just always, your contract technically is with the homeowner, but how often does the homeowner keep? $5,000, $10,000, Five thousand, ten thousand, or thirty thousand dollars in their bank account just for an emergency repair.
0: Right, and and as far as the other side, or you know, there's two sides, in, in, and they're they're naturally set up to be adversarial in nature in the appraisal process, representation of the insured and then the insurer. But for the insurer side, it has to be some type of reasonableness because the carriers cannot uh, allow claims to be to sit on their books for an unreasonable amount of time they're responsible for their shareholders right and they can't leave out uh, and they they're responsible for financial filings uh, and they're responsible for setting up reserves they can't allow uh, policies and claims to go in an undetermined amount of time because how could they properly uh, do their financial filings, which are required uh, by statute. So it's understandable that the carrier wants to move this along and cannot be put in a bad situation or untenable situation in allowing claims to go on ad infinitum, right? So would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. And uh, whether the, you get into accounting, there's both accrual and cash method accounting. So things can be carried over from one fiscal period to another. But um, one of the terms they they I was talking about the somebody doing a job and let's say they invoiced a customer. Uh, I looked up the ISO standard ISO HO3 policy which is called an all-risk uh policy let me see the, the actual technical name on the title here uh special form and I got this from the insurance information institute and I looked up the word reasonable and look, right in there additional coverages debris removal we will pay your reasonable expense, and that word is often used in many contractual uh, clauses in the policy. You know, that doesn't mean that somebody could just say, this job is going to cost $100,000, because that's not reasonable. And an appraisal is supposed to come up with a amount of loss. And the, both appraisers should be looking towards a reasonable end on that.
0: Right, and just to, just to like I said, we were speaking in generalities, we both have our, our backgrounds and where we come from on this. And Ed has pointed out that th- there's been cases that he's read where 31 to 39 months has been determined uh, to be not an unreasonable standard. I know that uh, if I recall right, uh, in Texas there was a case. Uh, I believe it's uh, Brody uh, Insurance Service Corporation versus V. Brody uh, back uh, maybe into the 19, 1960. Uh, And in this particular case, uh, they found that uh, the appointment of appraisals did not comply with the policy provision, and uh, Brody filed suit 42 days after the insurer demanded appraisal. And at that time, the demand for appraisal took place 72 days after the adjuster had originally examined the loss. Uh, The Brody court agreed the demand for appraisal was untimely and waived and uh, not in compliance with the policy. So really, it is a case by case basis uh, as far as determining what is uh, reasonable demand on its face value. If you told me 42 days or 72 days, I wouldn't say that that seems uh, unreasonable to me. But in this particular case, that was deemed by the courts to be uh, untimely waived all right and not in compliance with the policy so
1: and i looked it up as you were mentioning that case that's from 1960 so we're already 59 years past when something became presidential and still in usage
0: right and and that's usually the way the courts look at things if it if it ends up going to litigation right they try to rely on rulings that have already taken place and kind of build upon those if the set up circumstances can be argued that they're the same right Now, we talked about this in episode one. Just to be realistic now, uh, the the dates that are mentioned in the appraisal clause, such as uh, notify the other party of the appraiser's identity within 20 days of receipt of the written demand, does that usually occur?
1: In my experience, yes, it does.
0: Okay, so that that may be just that people usually keep that time frame because there you're just naming the two appraisers. That is, as as
1: long as the insurance the other party in the dispute is going to cooperate. And on this one, I will state a name only because it is almost globally. um,
0: Are you sure you want to state the name?
1: uh, There's one insurance carrier out there.
0: Well, maybe you could just say uh, it's one of the larger ones. It is one of the larger ones based
1: out of Illinois, uh, the state of Illinois. (laughs) And uh, they uh, are globally known for not accepting appraisals at all. So.
0: So, so if so if a if a carrier in this case uh, feels that they're not at an impasse or that the case is not ripe for appraisal, it doesn't. It, it's it's not appropriate for appraisal. Uh, they will usually send a uh, when the demand comes in. They will usually send out a a denial letter, right? A uh, denying the appraisal.
1: They will say that they'll come up with their uh, clarifications and why they feel it is not technically ripe for appraisal. But what they failed to reject is this is a contractual requirement. The, the oppositions to the appraisal and the results of the appraisal are supposed to come in after the appraisal process. It is supposed to be litigated after an award is done. It's, uh, appraisal is mandatory in the state of Illinois.
0: Okay, but speaking uh, uh, strictly, if in the terms of appraisal, in the first line, it'll say specifically, right, as we read earlier, if you and we fail to agree, on the actual cash rate, what if the carrier says there's nothing to agree upon because there's no coverage in place and your amount of loss uh, is zero? There's nothing for us to argue about. We're not extending coverage.
1: Well, if they're not extending coverage, then they do have a valid point. Uh, now, if just because the the dollar amount at the end of the benefit thing, you know, so what if somebody had a $5,000 deductible and there was $4,000 of damages which brought them to a negative 1,000, which the end uh, result would be a $0 claim value. That still is an appraisal issue because coverage was was issued. What was covered issued for? Now that also uh, gets into a little bit of a debate. Is it interior damage? What, did the, what caused the interior damage? Is it also the exterior uh, building envelope? Is it the roofing? Is it the siding? Is it windows? What caused the interior damage? Was it a covered peril? But that is also causation in Illinois is allowable.
0: And that's why, one of the reasons I love this field in particular. So then you have so many nuances here and so many shades of gray. And if you, so in first line, if you and we fail to agree on the actual cafe, now the next question becomes, I can, I'm agreeing that there's damage, let's just say for the sake of argument, hypothetical, I'm a carrier and I'm agreeing that there's damage on the interior of a property, interior of the building envelope. And the contractor or the homeowner wants to argue or go to appraisal, all right, the insured demands appraisal, and wants to start assessing the value of a roof. Now, if I'm the carrier, I don't feel that there's anything to talk about concerning the roof because I have not extended coverage for the roof. I've only extended coverage for the interior of the home. So in that particular situation, and, and like I said, you can split hairs, what is that, is the roof appraisable in your mind?
1: Yes, uh, I'm of the opinion that the roofing is is appraisable. In all likelihood, the, the two appraisers that go out there will be competent. That's the that first word, competent and either independent or impartial. And they will be competent enough to determine if, number one, if there was damage that uh, was attributable to the roof. And I'm not talking about them getting into the coverage aspect decision of it. They're just visually recognizing what should have been recognized all along.
0: Okay, so yeah. that is why, like I said, I love this field because you can really split hairs and really get into some really arguments. So if what if to sum it up, I think what you're trying to say is the two appraisers that are chosen, it's incumbent upon them to be competent, independent and be able to work together, to determine exactly what kind of scope they're going to look at in this particular claim, correct? That's right. And the
1: best way to do that prior to the two appraisers starting off is to create a memorandum of what you're going to be looking at. But I will also say this. It's very rare for the opposing appraiser and yourself to agree on every single item that you would want to have on a memorandum. The general memorandum is just that, hi, I, I vouch and swear that I'm going to be independent and Look at this claim with an unbiased set of eyes and come to a judicious decision. That's not the wording, but that's the intent. Uh, Come up to a a fair decision on the amount of loss.
0: So that memorandum basically just reinforces what's already in the appraisal protocol, the appraisal language,
1: correct? Technically, you do not need, it is not required to have a memorandum. I'm just suggesting it is a method to... Beat issues to the punch before they arise. If you and the other appraiser can agree that you should look at this, this, and this, and, and the other appraiser doesn't agree to that, but he only wants to look at this and this, you know, then it, what? What do you do at that point, Neil? Right.
0: Well, again, uh, the the whole. The whole system is based on the fact that you are going to select an umpire, correct? There you go. And that umpire is going to be the tiebreaker in making decisions that the two appraisers can't reasonably get together and agree on. The hope is, and I've acted as an umpire, court-appointed umpire in multiple jurisdictions, I can tell you there's nothing worse uh, than being an umpire where the two appraisers are uh, fighting like uh, little children over personal squabbles. And uh, you have to basically play referee, or uh, kind of like a a teacher in a schoolroom, and put one in one corner, one in the other, and say, "Okay, okay, listen, you, you two guys or two guys and girls or whatever the makeup of the uh, appraiser panel would be, and say, let's let's co- what can we agree on? Okay, let's not talk about for a minute what you cannot agree on because that's huge, but let's talk about what you are in agreement on, and then work from there to narrow it down." Uh, Which brings us to the next point. At which point, because it's not specifically said so, uh, with a day range or anything like the 15 days that you uh, are going to say you're going to agree upon an umpire. At what point do you get an umpire involved?
1: Well, you're talking about bringing in the umpire. and The the nice thing about the umpire is... He is supposed to be the mitigating factor in the entire process, even if both appraisers were found out to be biased in some small or modicum, mediocre percentage of what other people would consider to be too too much impartial. The umpire is the mitigating factor. He's supposed to take care of that. That's why there are three people on the, on the piano when it gets at that point. And the only items that are supposed to go to the umpire are the items that are still in disagreement. But I'm going to say in real world, that is not what always happens.
0: Okay, so there's no. So, again, it doesn't spell it out, you know. uh, So what are we looking at uh, for a time wise uh, to to bring somebody in? Uh, And what about the cost, which we already talked about episode one? But just to recap, who's going to pay those empire fees again?
1: Each party is responsible for 50% of the umpire's fees.
0: Okay, so you're splitting those. Now the next question is, one of the other parties doesn't want to want to, want to use the umpire because of the expense, and the, other, the opposing party doesn't mind or feels they're at an impasse. Do you have to come to a consensus to reach out to the umpire, or can either party seek out the umpire? That
1: puts the appraiser in a very precarious and difficult situation. Because the appraiser wants to go through and just do what he's being uh, assigned to do. He wants to complete the task assigned. He wants to, to complete it. And what if all of a sudden his party says, no, we're not paying for the umpire? It, it would be proper due diligence still to go through with all the steps and procedures of the appraisal process. If that means uh, the next step would be an on-site meeting convening, you still attend the on-site meeting because you were the assigned and named appraiser just as the other party's appraiser was, and the umpire is not supposed to take an ex-parte view on that. Uh, hopefully, the, the parties that are involved in the situation, this will be fair-minded. And if an event like that were to occur, you have to determine, was was a violation of fairness uh, created by that ex-party pattern over there?
0: But... But you're in agreement with me that it doesn't require both parties to agree to invoke the umpire. Either party can invoke the umpire, correct?
1: Yeah, either one. As as soon as I say that there's a dispute, I could say, "Um, Mr. Umpire, come on in. Now, the umpire also, because he he has his choice, he could say, I would like to hear from the other person first, or he can just say, fine, well, let's let's reach a date and an agreement on when we're going to go visit the site or look at the the information. Here's the time frame for you to submit documentation to me. Right.
0: And, and submit their differences, right? We're, we're, he Really the umpire doesn't care about what you've already agreed upon. The umpire is there to determine the differences, right? Where you really can't, can't I, get a I, handle I, it. I would like to
1: say that that would be the reality, but it's not the reality. I've seen umpires take the entire claim and work at it as a third arbitrator themselves,
0: now, as a third appraiser. If, if that happens, do you feel that is valid grounds for overturning an award? I'm
1: I'm going to use my answer that it depends on how the award came out. If it was uh, a totally illegitimate award, if that happened, if he went, let's say, retroactively went backwards on things that were already agreed on, that's something I think that uh, even though we take adversarial points of view, I think that you and I could both agree that if an umpire took something out that was already agreed on, that he was going beyond his authority level of of being the umpire.
0: Right. And we are going to have another episode uh, later talking about – overturning uh, an, an award and what the steps are involved in that, and that does happen. It doesn't happen very often, and, and uh, appraisals should be uh, appraisal should be binding. Appraisal should be something that is a uh, substantial, but it can happen that uh, appraisal awards are overturned, correct?
1: Yes, it is, and it takes a unique set of circumstances and parties with litigation uh, availability and funds to do it. Then go ahead with that.
0: Right. And uh, as I said before, we're going to have some guests on future episodes and some of these guests may be involved in that and they could speak directly to a particular uh, situation where that's occurred and it might be helpful to our listeners. Uh, so, Let's and are we going to include some links to some forms and things like that? What are some forms involved in the appraisal? Well, Even though it doesn't specifically say and uh, define forms in that appraisal clause, we, we do, do know that the written uh, the demand should be in written form. Go ahead with that.
1: Well, we gave away a lot of forms at a previous uh... A presentation in august and what what i would suggest if anybody does want to get the demand for appraisal form please contact myself or mr mclaughlin and my my name once again was edward faco and my insurance appraisal email address is insurance claim appraisals at com, and I'm that'll
0: there. be in a link uh, underneath uh the notes the show notes So uh, you can just simply copy and paste that into your uh, email and send in a request for the form. But we will make available a uh, written demand for appraisal form in general uh, for those of you who would want one in your library.
1: And if you want a little taste of what that one, just the beginning of the demand for insurance claim for post-loss appraisal, it says, despite all of our attempts, the adjuster employed by your company and I have been unable to agree on the amount of loss and cost of repair or replacement for the damage sustained to my property by the covered peril. Since there remains a dispute between us as to the amount of my loss and damage, I am hereby invoking the appraisal process afforded me under the conditions section of my property policy. I'm going to stop it right there. I I do go into a little bit more um, legalese style detail, but at that point, the most critical factor is at that point right there in writing, the party has now invoked appraisal in writing. You you can possibly make a phone call. You can possibly do an email. But the best way to do this is to put that demand for appraisal in a combination of email and certified letter sent to the claims department with return receipt required so that you have an officially legalized stamp date. When did they receive it? They signed for it when they received it. And that is the countdown date for that twenty days for the other party to name their appraiser.
0: And the reason that we're offering a, a general form, uh, you know, and and these are guidelines, and you know, don't use the form exactly, but we want to make sure you're aware of what things it should contain, is the fact that appraisal is a process that they say is frequently found in insurance policies. It's most commonly used in property damage situations, but I've had the situation where uh, there has been other uh, policies uh, not uh, involving property damage in which someone has misused a demand for appraisal form in those policies. And that could be grounds for rejection uh, because they're using an improper form that doesn't apply to property damage situations. OK. And, of course, we're trying to do everything correctly. Uh, but what we're watch- watching out for here, what we're going to learn through these podcast shows is the times that appraisal is improperly, improperly invoked, improperly employed and improperly carried out. We're going to go through all these steps in all these episodes. Uh, and remember, this is all frequently carried out without attorneys, just between the insurer and the insured. It's supposed to be an alternative dispute resolution that avoids full blown litigation. Right? Uh, so let's see here. So that is pretty much, is there anything else other than going into compelling appraisal uh, and how a person, let's wrap up with compelling appraisal. Say you've put a demand for appraisal in, uh, it's been denied. Uh, what's your next step? What's your I mean, course you know, this of action? let could
1: actually get into an entire episode on that alone. So in Just, brevity, to most, the most succinct way to compel appraisal. If you're going to be involved in insurance appraisals, you darn well better get to know an insurance-related, a property insurance attorney, somebody that knows property insurance policies plus the appraisal clause, not just property insurance policies, but they need to know the appraisal clause forward and backward, and then you will hire them to represent you and do what is called motion to compel appraisal. The other party will be... uh, served that notice and then will they will appear in court and tell the judge why they do not feel appraisal is worthy and that's what that's the standard way to do it. Uh it is something that a a a savvy homeowner could do pro se. I do not recommend it.
0: Okay. So this was episode two and just to wrap it up we talked about some of the the roadmap to do appraisal. And we talked about, we read the appraisal language, common appraisal language that is contained in most policies. Uh, each one is different. We talked about steps. We gave, we're going to give you links in the description below to forms uh, that you can download. These are general forms, not to be used precisely. And we gave you some options when you, with uh, and ideas of what roadblocks there are to appraisal. So uh, I would like to welcome you back uh, Another uh, to listen to another podcast. This was Episode 2. And, and any final words?
1: Yeah, please subscribe to this if you find this topic interesting. At first, we're going to start off almost exclusively about insurance appraisal. But at a certain point in time, part of the discussion about appraisals will get, get involved with insurance claims and topics regarding insurance claims. We will also have guest speakers who have either... Moderate experience or very, very great, lengthy experience with the appraisal process. There are some people that I look at, look up to in this industry. That, in my mind, in my heart, they're like historians on this topic. And we would uh, love to see them here. If you have any questions and comments, you can preferably post them on the bottom link here for the comment section of this podcast. In addition to that, you can also send them directly to the email address that I, I stated before insurance claim appraisals at gmail.com right Neil, do you want to give your
0: no uh we we have a uh, we have a little link in the back that's going to have uh ed's email my email the show's email and how to how to how to reach both of us it'll go to both of us at the same time uh even though we're we're, we're in two different fields sometimes two different locations uh two different parts of the country sometimes based on whatever we assignment uh, our assignments are Uh, But I would say uh, Ed's correct. Please like the show. We really want to get it going. And also, it'll help us if anyone has any ideas of who they feel might be a great guest in in other parts of the country. We're based out of the Midwest, although we travel nationwide. But really, uh, we've been inundated with uh, requests from some people to come on the show. uh, And we're being very selective of who we're going to have on as guests. Right, Ed?
1: I do not personally, and I think you agree, we don't want something just to present a biased front. What we're seeking is a true, impartial, fair view of the appraisal process as it was intended.
0: Right. And I think that also quality. We really, really, really want quality guests that are going to have something to say, as opposed to someone who's just maybe trying to promote a product, correct, or service.
1: Right. I've got several people in mind, and uh people that are familiar with this industry will recognize some of the names that that will eventually be attending. I've spoken with a gentleman from North Carolina, another one from New York and another one from Florida. And uh, these will be key personalities in the insurance appraisal process as long as, as well as Texas too. You can't forget the people that have done a lot in this industry and I'd like to have them as part of the show.
0: Okay. All right. With that, we're going to wrap up episode two. Remember to like subscribe, share, And until next episode, we wish you well and we will see you then and say goodbye.
1: Goodbye, everybody. See you later.